0: now they call me paul nelson my three-year-old thinks it's funny when anyone calls me anything other than dad but thank you for clicking your way here this all started on a whim of me wanting to feel like i should get to know my co-conspirators at work on a different level and so far it's been really fun i, I can only hope someone that filters through i'm flying solo for this episode. We are talking to Ryan Stowe of the University of Wisconsin about raisins and some considerations if you're ready to bring 3DL to a classroom near you. So strap in, put on those goggles, that scarf those old time pilots wore. Away we go.
1: Hi, my name is Ryan Stowe, and I feel optimistic about three-dimensional learning. Nice.
0: All right, my friends, we are in for a treat today. Thank you for joining us, Ryan. Happy to be here. I say treat um, maybe not like a bag of licorice, but more like a bag of apples or a box of raisins. You know, when the people give you raisins when you go trick-or-treating.
1: Great. Not object- <laughs> not objectively <laughs> terrible, but sort of mediocre. No, no. It's, I mean,
0: it's better than razor blade laced candy bars. What I'm trying to say, you're no, no doubt going to give us some substance, um, some healthy dried up grapes to chew on. And now you are uh, milking cows somewhere.
1: Uh, yep. Right? Milking cows in Madison, okay. Wisconsin. Where we have right. really, really cheap and really, really good cheese at the dairy store at Babcock Hall. So you, there are gift baskets you can buy some. You can send it to your friends. <laughs> and then you got the cheese curds too
0: in Wisconsin. Don't forget yep. that. Oh yeah, might I make? I made I made fun of JT for cows in Kansas, and now I'm I'm after you about the Wisconsin cows. But yours are dairy, and JT's are eaten, right? That's true. You prior to coming to Michigan State, from what I understand, you weren't uh, in ed head
1: no i was an aspirational ed head but uh, that's about it and so i i I made molecules and sent them off so that people could uh, see how well they kill cancer cells and uh, i sort of grew disillusioned with that after a couple of years because it turns out the distance between that and anything a human will ever actually take is sort of vast and typically not surmounted by anything a graduate student works on Uh, and i saw so many of the problems that that we were facing had um at least potential remedies to do with with education, whether it's public health education or or knowing more about the human impact on climate change and ways we can remediate that I mean there was this sort of vast swath of problems that we could address with some immediacy um if if we as a society had a mind to, and that to me seemed much more urgent and much more tractable than I'm going to just make molecules till two a m and they're probably going to be useless i could
0: uh I could relate to that a little bit that disconnect between basic research, basic science and, and then getting a glimpse of really helping kids. Um, there's a story among Melanie's group where you come into a meeting or you just walk in the lab or something and you say something like, um, who's this Russian Who's this Russian guy? What's he talking about? At least I've been told that's the spirit of the quote. I
1: I just went into Melanie's office. Yeah, so I'd I'd been in Melanie's group, I don't know, a couple of weeks or something. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. And uh, I was reading this paper and they kept talking about this Vygotsky guy. (laughs) It's like, what? (laughs) According to Vygotsky, blah, 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 blah. And so we have thought this. And I'm like, who's this guy whose name starts with V? Why do we care what he thinks? Melanie thought that was pretty funny.
0: Yeah. Well... I mean, it's pretty, it's clearly pretty impressive how far you've come and how productive you've already been in a pretty short time. And you touched on this a little bit, but maybe even more directly, what was the impetus to get involved in the education research side? You know, you could have gone other ways and within education.
1: Um, so I had a time in, as an undergraduate where I went to the National Academy of Sciences and I did uh, what's called a Christine Merzayan Science and Technology Policy Fellowship. It's like a three month thing where you work with one of the boards doing whatever it is they want you to do. Um, and I worked with a board on science education and there I really spent a lot of time soul searching and thinking about what is a way that I, as somebody who's had training in chemistry can productively contribute to addressing some of these, these major issues that education can play a part in, in helping remediate didn't even know chemistry education research existed. So when I joined Melanie's group, I think I knew about the existence of chemEd as a field for less than a year. Uh, And so I thought what Melanie did was really very interesting. And and I didn't know when I started in her group that I wanted to pursue an academic role. But I think the longer I was there, the more sort of interesting questions that I might pursue as an independent investigator popped up. And I'm really happy to be able to pursue some of those now. For me, uh, as a fellow switcher into ed
0: research, um, and I think it's a combination of how, you know, how ridiculously easy it is to access so many journals these days, and I might age myself a little there, but there's this issue of information abundance that can be kind of paralyzing and not just within whatever chemistry um, education or, you know, deeper places, but there's so many fields and research traditions that feel adjacent and relevant to what we're trying to do. You can't read them all. (laughs) So how do you how do you decide um, what you're gonna really read? How's you, how's that work for you?
1: I think I benefited enormously from curated collections of resources and graduate courses, and as a member of Melanie's group for sort of group meeting type discussions. So in particular, Christina Schwartz had a course um, in in the School of Ed, and I can't remember the course number, but it was one of these special topics type courses. And it was really broad in scope. And it touched just a little bit on a lot of very, very interesting things related to nature and appropriate use of knowledge, a lot of stuff related to construction and use of models, which I now would contend is the most important scientific practice, all the way to to critical race theory, the role of, of educational systems and either reinforcing or subverting systems of oppression. I mean, things I'd never thought of before. And, and I remember every day leaving that class and just being excited to explore a new a new swath of the literature and she had such a wonderful eye for seminal contributions that I was able to do that in a lot more efficient way than if I were to just go hey I heard this cool buzzword let me like look in Google Scholar and go down a rabbit hole Um, in terms of of things that I decide now that I want to sort of sit down and fully read I mean they have to touch upon problems that I'm, I'm actively interested in and or researching and of course there's a big overlap there Often, there are a subset of authors that I look for who I know do really, really good work. And I do a decent amount of skimming before I commit to a 40 page JARS paper.
0: Kurt Lewin, who is the unfreeze, change, refreeze guy, he said, There's nothing so practical as a good theory. Do you um, agree, at least with his sentiment?
1: Yeah. Um, I think that when we're talking about educational systems and we're talking about the process of learning, there are so many degrees of freedom that you have to reduce system complexity. I guess I think of it more as a model than a theory. There's a lot of overlap there. People use both of those in all sorts of different ways. But you have to simplify the system and decide what you're going to focus on. And you need to be very cognizant of the assumptions you're making when you do that. And if you don't do that, you're paralyzed. You can't do anything.
0: Maybe you want to use a different word, but what theoretical frameworks have been the most productive for you as you have as you continue to make contributions to the field?
1: I really enjoy resources, theories of cognition. There's a lot of work that's been done on, on conceptual resources being activated to answer school science sorts of problems. There's a lot of really interesting work related to um, student sense of what is going on in the moment. So their frame and the things that act to stabilize or destabilize that. So is the game I'm playing right now um, tell the teacher the right buzzword so they tell me that I you know, got the right answer? Or is the game, I want to figure out how and why this happened. And it's okay if I draw in colloquial resources to do that because my goal is figuring out the cause. It isn't satisfying some sort of external requirement that I might or might not buy into. Uh, and so there there's many kind of overlapping things that have grown to be housed under this resources framework that I find really interesting.
0: You were... Head in this direction, I think, with somewhat what somewhat you're saying. But you are really good at when you want to at boiling down um, three dimensional learning to short sound bites. Sometimes,
1: usually including words like using and explaining. Could you um, share one of those with us? Um, sure. To me, three dimensional learning is about sort of precisely parameterizing what we want students to do when they make sense of aspects of the world around them. So what does that really mean? People have used inquiry and critical thinking. And I mean, if we talk about which big ideas we want students to draw on and how we want them to use those as they're making sense of something or arguing from evidence or whatever, uh, then that gives us something that has a, a tradition of literature behind it and that we have some hope of actually characterizing in a way that you can't do if you just use really, really vague terms. That's why I said I'm optimistic Mm -hmm. about three-dimensional learning. I think as a research Mm -hmm. tool and as a way of guiding practice, uh, it's a much more precise way of thinking about learning and learning environments than most of the prior paradigms. It's not perfect. There's instances of, there's Mm -hmm. challenges with it, but I think it's it's a cool way forward.
0: We've gotten Melanie's and JT's kind of 30,000 foot snapshots of what 3DL is, but I'm going to ask you some version of that same question too. What What would you say, and maybe you just said it, what would you say, though, is new or revolutionary, if anything, about 3DL? Is it, you're mentioning the precision it provides with its language, I think.
1: Yeah. um, There's a lot of scholarship underpinning it. And so we have a pretty good idea of what it means to construct and use a model. And it isn't just drawing a picture. Uh, and there's there's literature that ties that to the sorts of things that scientists do. There's literature that shows the tremendous capacity of of students, um, even very young students, to engage in simplifying aspects of their existence and using some sort of simplified representation to predict and explain. Uh, so that allows us to design materials that support what we know the practice of modeling is and allows us to characterize student engagement in that. Same with the, the core ideas. So there's a long, long tradition in chemistry of listing sort of these lists of great ideas or big ideas or grand ideas or whatever, but they've always been the sort of things the experts say you should know. Well, now with three-dimensional learning, we can refashion core ideas into um, these large grain notions that let you make sense of a lot of different phenomena. And so there's a utility in our definition of big ideas that wasn't there before. And we're now focusing on their utility to students in making sense of things instead of just um their things the old white dudes say you should know.
0: Okay, so there's there are three dimensions, and I would uh hazard a guess, or I would I would argue maybe there's a reason that you've mentioned two, not a third. But if say say, you're, I'm, you're uh, um, <laughs> say I'm a uh, say I'm a college science instructor who is Come to the conclusion that I want to do more than stand and deliver and cover a list of topics, and 3DL makes sense to me. Is it, is it reasonable uh, for for that person to focus on one of the dimensions, whether it's core ideas or scientific practices or cross cutting concepts, as they start to transform their course?
1: It is on cross cutting concepts. Let me tell you right <laughs> now. Uh, no, I don't think it makes sense actually, um, I don't think you can know that students are connecting a phenomenon to a large grain idea unless they engage in a practice. So you really can't have evidence of a core idea without a practice. Now, you can can do a practice without a core idea. And the most common that I've seen are analysis interpretation of data uh, and and computational thinking. So for example, in organic chemistry, you can interpret spectroscopic data, uh, pull information from it and argue as to the structure of some sort of unknown molecule that actually doesn't require you use a core idea. Uh, If you know the rules of the game, you can assemble a prediction that's consistent with the evidence. If you stop there, I think you're gonna have a a, a much less rich sort of learning environment than if you were to then ask how and why particular spectral features convey certain things about the molecule. Or um, if you produce some sort of weird mixture, you could try to make sense of of why things happen the way they did as evidenced by the spectroscopic data that that you've seen.
0: Is a dumbed down version of what you're saying, if you're gonna, if you're gonna do the practice, why, you might, why not connect it to a core idea?
1: Yeah, uh, if you don't connect it to a core idea, it's not going to be recognizable as the discipline. So if you, just, if you just have analysis and interpretation of data, where if you know the rules of the game, you can pull information from it. I mean, that doesn't need to be in a, in a chem class. That could be a logic puzzle you get in New York Times. Mm-hmm. It's not recognizable as chemistry. Uh, or any other discipline, unless you're connecting it to these sort of large grain ideas and using those to help illuminate how and why phenomena happen. Okay, so I, I may I may be asking the same thing again, but I think
0: you have again been quoted as saying, uh, "This is just from my recollection." <laughs> oh, God. The, some, no, this, is, this is just me from hearing you talking in the meetings. Meetings, but so some of them you've said something about 3DL not going to be it will not be a quick fix for anyone. So what do you mean and what does that mean for the person who kind of stumbles across it and wants to start along the path?
1: Uh, This is a pretty major sea change from the status quo. And it's, it's quite a challenging one for students and for instructors. And you need to be engaged in that sort of thinking coherently across assessment and instructional context for quite some time to be able to do that across a wide variety of different phenomena. If we take a traditional general chemistry course, they're arranged according to a sort of 1950s era physical chemist textbook called Chemistry by Senko and Plain. They had no training in the learning sciences. And the vast majority of the things that students actually do are math and recall. Uh, A quick fix there would be things like integrate more non-lecture pedagogies um, or slightly tweak the order of topics. That's still nowhere near emphasizing, explaining how and why phenomena happen. Uh, In order to have such a coherent emphasis, you would need to more or less totally overhaul your course. And so if you're just stumbling into this, you probably want to find some existing resources and see Mm. if you can get some help adapting a significant chunk of your course to three dimensional types of instruction and assessment. I don't think just tweaking a couple of things is going to do much. Mm.
0: That kind of leads into your uh, your recent experience as a new faculty member, who were assigned a kind a big lecture class right at the gate. Is that true?
1: Well, I asked for it. What, it was organic chemistry, right? It was organic chemistry. Yeah, so I've taught both semesters okay. of the um, sophomore organic sequence.
0: What supports were in place that helped you implement some non-zero amount of 3D L into that class?
1: Uh, there's a a pre-existing community of really, really great instructors who for a long time have valued explaining how and why things happen. And so they have for years been using materials that are, you know, between 30 and 50% of of points allotted to three-dimensional types of assessments. And so the class, of Mm -hmm. course, has to support the assessments, which I'm sure Melanie talked about. Otherwise, your students arrive at your house with pitchforks and torches. (laughs) So I kind of glucked out. I mean, I I joined this team. We refined what we meant by making sense of phenomena a little bit more, but uh, really for the, this is now my third semester uh, involved with that sequence. And the vast majority of our assessments are well over 30% of points on three-dimensional items. And that is consistent with our emphasis in our weekly sort of small group discussion activities as well as all the homework assignments. All that stuff is bespoke, is written by our team for our class. We don't make use of textbook problems because they're trash. So um, I got really lucky. I don't really have—I don't have much to complain
0: about. This quote, I think, is a hybrid. I don't know if it was you or Melanie, but um, uh, so it's it, it's been given an it's been given an acronym: FYDA, Fix Your Dang Assessment.
1: What is so critical about that? Uh, I'm sure I stole it from Melanie. It was definitely her first. Uh, your assessments tell your students what you really care about, right? uh who who succeeds and to what extent in your course is determined by the things you give points to and so if you day one of your class say that this is going to teach you how to be great doctors and think critically and do inquiry and all the other great feel-good buzzwords and then all you ever do is assess like can you memorize the reaction and draw chairs in weird contorted ways your class is an art class like it isn't really about making sense of phenomena or analyzing data or using models or whatever if you really are going to have your class be about aspects of scientific practice, then you need to all- allot a lot of points to that on the things that you assess. And so we certainly shoot for at least 35 to 50% of points in all of our organic exams being three dimensional items. I'm
0: smiling because JT would refuse to put a number on a on a target for <laughs> the thirty-five to fifty that you threw out there. Um so
1: that's that's not 100 You want to know what my Go target ahead. is? My target's 100%. I don't think I agree with <laughs> Melanie on this, but I would contend any skill that is worth anything you can embed as part of a larger three-dimensional question. Aren't there some parts of,
0: say, gateway chemistry courses that might not need to be 3D?
1: My question to you would be, what's the point of those things? Because ultimately, drawing a Lewis structure exists so that you can construct a model to explain differences in properties if you just pull the skill out if you have it just be lewis structure drawing or just be stoichiometry and you've you've just totally removed all the connectors to the whole activity that that would actually be a part of in a lab then it becomes a useless game
0: maybe we're kind of talking past each other but don't
1: you just have to be told some stuff or well sure but then how do we assess that Right? So, the point isn't just that you're told stuff and you spit it back. The point is, you have to calibrate the level at which you expect an explanation or a model. Right? You're never going to reach, I mean, Me- Melanie loves this sort of Feynman series of lectures talking about, like, I think magnetism or something. Like, you can keep going deeper and deeper and deeper on explanations. And you're going to then eventually reach a point where, like, humanity doesn't know. Um, and and that's fine right there's always a point at which we can't explain any further for students we need to think carefully about what that is and that's going to vary depending on the student population and the level of course however um things that you're told about for instance relationship between potential energy and like distance of atoms or whatever like the point is that you then use that to predict the outcome of some new related phenomenon or explain something that you've just experienced like the point isn't just that you have random bits of knowledge that you can shoot back at somebody and i think and granted i'm i'm still maybe i am like hopelessly naive but i wrote an exam for organic um two that we're going to give in a a few months that's like 75 eh, percent 3d and the only reason it ain't 100 percent is because my my compatriots insisted i have some predict the product questions there's skills in there they're part like a of, you know, maybe a 7 or 8 part problem. Like you can still assess skills.
0: Okay, so push that to the extreme. I mean, if I just make my assessment uh two questions with each with 14
1: parts. Sure. <laughs> you got to be obviously you need a, more than two the other challenge is you, you don't want to like if you miss part two you don't want to lose half the points in the test the third challenge of course is practical in nature so i think the real reason why most people are not going to have 100 percent 3d assessments is their hellish grade <laughs> like that is admittedly true mm-hmm. uh, i kind of just want to see if it can be done and i think <laughs> i think that you know <laughs> pedagogically it's a good thing to do practically it's, it's
0: possibly a little yeah. rough so yeah, you you mentioned sending me a paper I haven't had a chance to look at all of it but I think I get the takeaway and I think it is um intertwined with another perspective you've been focusing on recently and that is 3DL's potential impact on leading to more equitable outcomes for your students at UW and and beyond that. I think this question follows from that. Could you take me through the connection? A lot of times when you talk about this, you talk about math preparedness. Could you take me through the connection between that math preparedness
1: and its relation to to other outcomes? Uh, Sure. So there is a decades old literature, and there's far too many papers on this, that talk about how um, scores on, for example, ACT, SAT math components predict success in general chemistry. And this has been used to justify um, math prerequisites and placement tests that are mathematical in nature for whether people get to go into chemistry or whether they have to take some sort of remedial math course. It's become in some circles almost treated as a truism that, oh, well, math scores predict chem success. And so you need to kind of make sure students are up to snuff in their math or else they're not going to do as well. Well, of course, you know, math preparation is a function of prior math opportunities. and, And it's well known that, These ACT, SAT math components and the ACT, SAT more generally tend to favor students who uh, are are more privileged, have more parental wealth, went to schools that are better resourced, et cetera. And so one could rightly characterize them as, as measures of privilege. And so when we say SAT, SAT math component are associated with student success, we're saying something that serves as a decent proxy for privilege is associated with chemistry success, which implies that maybe these environments are not all that equitable. Now, what we've um, discovered in our work is that if you take a look, for instance, somewhere like like Michigan State University, where students have both three-dimensional items where they're asked to explain how and why things happen and sort of the more mathematical, how many grams of this would you get if you reacted to these two things. If you look at both samples of items and you look at how well they differentiate between students who did pretty well on the ACT/ SAT math and students that struggled a bit. So the top three quartiles would be those who did pretty well. The bottom quartile would be those who struggled a bit on the SAT or ACT math, we see that the three-dimensional items differentiate between those two cohorts far, far less than the math items do, the stoichiometry or, or uh, equilibrium calculations and so forth. That's not all that surprising because, of course, we operationalize equity in this case in terms of math performance, so it shouldn't shock anybody. But it does suggest that one of the reasons why there's such tight relationship between math prior prep and success in Gen Chem is that Gen Chem assesses a ton of math. And in fact, we've looked at the assessment emphasis at three different institutions at, at UW where I work, at, at Michigan State, and at University of Iowa, and we've seen that on some of these assessments, fully 80 3% of the points are decontextualized math problems. And that there is far more emphasis in that particular learning environment on decontextualized calculations than there is on explaining how and why things happen. So, what this means is you can know very little about how big ideas connect to phenomena and be really good at arithmetic and rock out in Gen Chem. And if you struggle with arithmetic as a function of your prior math opportunities, but you really are, are very, very interested in connecting big ideas to phenomena, that turns out that's not rewarded and you're probably going to struggle. So we're selecting students on the basis of something we don't really care about. And in so doing, we're exacerbating systemic inequities.
0: Do you, I don't know if you've looked for this, if if you can look for this, but what about, um, can you kind of disaggregate by what practices um, you're assessing? along these lines?
1: I don't think we have enough items to do that. Um, We've looked into it a little but Our data set would need to be pretty big in order. For example, we have a ton of explanation items, if you look at the practices emphasized on exams at Michigan State. We have a good number of modeling items. We have a lot fewer items related to mathematical thinking, for example. Uh, and of course there's different ways you can engage in modeling different sorts of models that you might create. And so we would need a a bigger sort of by item data set of three-dimensional items where we have sort of the full complement of student level data, uh, as well as a lot of different sorts of items in order to ask the the question that you just asked. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. So where, where are you going now?
1: Well, there's plenty of places. Let's start with one. Let's start with one. Well, my current, uh, one of my current vendettas uh is against the the i don't know if it's a truism but the the assumption that improving learning environments is as simple as integrating non-lecture pedagogies this sort of active learning thing this was the takeaway many people took from the freeman paper of course carl wyman has this very famous um editorial where he says lecture is the pedagogical equivalent of bloodletting lots of people especially administrators, have taken this up and run with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, this paper that we've taken a look at, Student Ability to Explain Dissolution, and we've looked at what happens in class, both in terms of pedagogy, intellectual focus using the 3D LOP, what's assessed shows that in fact, active or passive, if you're not actually emphasizing student engagement in 3D learning, they have a hard time with 3D tasks. Whether you use active pedagogies or no. Uh, And so this of course suggests that the sort of things students are actively engaged in in class and on assessments is really, really important. We have more than just this one dissolution focused assessment. We also have an acid base and intermolecular forces assessment where we're gonna be looking across those same three environments and seeing what sort of knowledge elements students call to mind across contexts. Um, We just submitted a grant on this to NSF. So if they throw money at us, which I hope they do, we will also be interviewing pairs of students to see um, their sense of what is going on when they approach one of these 3D tasks. So do they see, um, for example, looking at boiling point differential as an opportunity to figure out uh, some sort of perplexing phenomenon, or are they just going through the motions of a school science test question? What are the markers of that sort of differentiation?
0: You said pairs of students?
1: Yeah. So um when you think about making sense of a phenomenon, you're going to be both constructing possible explanations for how and why things happen and then critiquing the viability of the explanation you just constructed. So there's sort of an iterative process there. Since we're not Professor X, uh, it's really, really useful to have that be a verbalized dialogue. And so having pairs of students who work together uh, is, a, is a commonly used strategy for these sort of uh, framing focused interviews that we're hoping cool. to conduct. Yeah.
0: Cool. All right. Well, um, I think I'm going to upgrade you to yogurt covered raisins. I appreciate this chance. I appreciate you. And I appreciate this chance to digest with you. And I'm looking forward to more of your good work. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is great.